Hello all, welcome to That Creative Life. Thank you for choosing to listen in a time of uncertainty. I know me, sometimes I do need a little distraction from Twitter and the world, but I hope you're doing well, doing your part to social distance and help flatten that curve. Um, I thought before we jumped in today's podcast, which is so exciting, Hank Green, I have so much respect for this dude and I've been following his work on YouTube, beyond YouTube um, for so long. So we are in for a treat today, but I thought I'd share a few things of how I'm social distancing. One, I have been reading so much recently about the Toyota production system and like manufacturing lines and how companies uh, basically break that down and then run their plants and stuff because I think there's there's such a interesting connect with lean manufacturing or manufacturing principles and breaking down a process that I feel like I could almost apply to my video editing whenever I try to get help um, from other people because you guys know that that has been one of my biggest challenges is just delegation and I have succeeded in some areas of my life and then failed in others and I think it's because I'm not taking the time to really analyze my um, the the way I work and the little steps that I take every single time that I make a video. So that's fun. Doesn't that sound riveting? (laughs) And then the second thing I'm doing, which, you know, I'm usually reading a lot of business books and self-help. I'm very guilty of that. But I'm kind of going outside my comfort zone and reading a book by Melissa Gregg, who is actually a, oh gosh, I got to get this right. Hold on. She is the senior principal engineer at Intel leading research for the PC business, which is which is a big job, right? Um, but her book is called Counterproductive, and I feel like it's such a good book to read right now. Um, and I'll, I'll read you guys a little bit of the description. As online distractions increasingly colonize our time, why has productivity become such a vital demonstration of personal and professional competence? In Counterproductive, Melissa Gregg explores how productivity emerged as a way of thinking about job performance at the turn of the last century and why it remains prominent in different work worlds of today, examining historical and archival material alongside popular self-help genres from housekeeping manuals to bootstrapping business gurus and the growing interest in productivity and mindfulness software. Greg shows how a focus on productivity isolates workers from one another and erases their collective efforts to define work limits. See, this book is much more, mm, how do I put this lightly? It's just more smart than what I usually read. So it's a fun challenge. As we self uh, distance, social distancing, I can get words right, guys. But without further ado, Hank Green and me sitting down and chatting. I'm so excited for this conversation. And thank you, BNH, for sponsoring this podcast. If you guys are not aware, they are always so great at supporting creators locally here in New York City. They are the one-stop shop for all things electronics, photo, video, laptops. Um, And if you've ever been to New York City, they have the dopest superstore where anything that your heart desires, if you're in the creative field, they have. And so it goes beyond the store online. They have amazing support and they get gear to you ASAP. Very fast shipping, especially if you're here in New York. Recently, the past week, I have been doing so many office renovations. We're getting this place ready 
ready to shoot, ready to do podcasts, and they've been here every step of the way. And honestly, it's great that they're sponsoring the podcast because, you know, maybe I can make up for um, how much money I, I spend at BNH on the regular. <laughs> so if you're ever curious about that new piece of gear, they have so much info, so many great reviews. They have a lot of great content to help you make informed purchases as well at their BNH Explora blog. So if you want to know any gear that I use, or if you just want to check out BNH Photo, please check out the link in the show notes below. Thank you for supporting that Creative Life BNH Photo and enjoy the podcast. Welcome to That Creative Life. Hi, my name is Sarah Dici and I am your host. I talk with artists, YouTubers, CEOs, and everyone in between. I hope this podcast helps you live your best creative life. Enjoy. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of That Creative Life. It's a special one because we have Hank Green. I'm so excited. Um, I'll give a little bio of you. I, I was Googling you, you know, um, but you do so many things. So you're so much... So much more than a YouTuber, but a producer of many, many YouTube channels and shows via your uh, company, Complexly. Uh, you're a musician, which I totally want to dive into. Uh, you're an author, an entrepreneur. You started Vin uh, VidCon, which, you know, I've been multiple times. It's a huge event for YouTube creators and now just online creators in general. Um, it's so fun to see all the TikTokers there and stuff. <laughs> that made me sound old. The TikTokers. Um, <laughs> but it started in 2010. And did it start mm -hmm. with 1,400 people? That's what Google says. 1,400 people is, is as far as I know, the right number. Yeah, perfect. Um, that's, that's what I remember anyway. Yeah, yeah. It's and then while. now it's grown to just this massive thing. You sold to Viacom. Um, and the last one in the U.S. had over 75,000 attendees? Yeah, that so that's like day level attendees. The way that you count in conference world is you count like how many people are here day one, day two, day three, and you add all those up. So it's not 75,000 uniques as we would say in the business. Gotcha, gotcha, amazing. <laughs> it's um, page views. <laughs> <laughs> and so, I mean, that's kind of, did I miss anything? I mean, I said author, right? Author, musician, so yeah. many things. Yeah, that's that's. I, I can't keep it all straight either, if we're being honest. I <laughs> regularly go to my own website to see what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah, so I'm excited to dive in to all of those. And I, I think let's start with like business, Hank, because you're a creative, but you've also built a lot of a lot of things. Um, and it's so funny. I think maybe we should start with butt is legs. Oh, OK. That's not really business. It's not Hank. business at uh, all, <laughs> but it's my second bullet point. So I'm just going to scratch. Skip, skip off business and we'll go to butt his legs. Yeah, we'll hit business right after butt his legs. Okay. I mean, <laughs> uh, we were, so I have a podcast, uh, I have several podcasts, but I have a podcast with uh, the SciShow team called SciShow Tangents. And at the end of an episode of Tangents, we have a segment that's called But One More Thing, and it's a butt fact. We have a different butt fact every episode. Um, and... The, I don't even remember what the butt fact was, but after we stopped recording, we all started arguing about whether the, like the butt was part of the legs. And I went upstairs and I started to quiz everyone at my company. And, and like, you know, I'm that boss, you know, where I'm like, I like walk in, it's like 515, everybody wants to go home. Listen, and I'm like, guys, is, butt is, <laughs> is butt legs? Is butt legs? Julie, is butt legs? And then there's like like somebody's girlfriends in the in the in the room, and I'm like Sylvia's butt legs, and Sylvia's like I don't even work here. <laughs> so, 
that's the that's the work environment. Uh, and then I started, yeah. So I started, I started to. Tr- I think butt his legs. Um, I think I and and it's funny because I have one of my friends. Do you know Josh Sundquist? That sounds so familiar. He's a motivational speaker. He's okay. a YouTuber. Um, he was, I think, the first VidCon. He's been, he's he's a great, wonderful dude. He has only one leg. He had one of his legs amputated when he was a kid because of bone cancer. And he, so he has a unique perspective on this, which is that, like, he still kind of has a butt, but, like, his leg is gone. So... Like he, his leg is all the way up to the hip amputation, uh, but but he still has a, like at least one gluteal muscle. So he's like, man, if butt is leg, then what's this? What's this? But there, there is a lot. There, there. What what we learn from conversations such as these is the hot dog a sandwich is cereal a soup is butt legs, is that like it's all very complicated and messy. And I like the ways in which the world is complicated. I think that butt is leg because if I stand up and I like move my, and like I just sort of like feel, like put my hand on my butt and I move my leg around, it feels like that's part of the whole system. So that's, that's how I, that's, that's a how good I point. Feel. And I'm so glad we address this right out the gate. Right. You know, yes. I think it's a really important way to start. So thank you. Thank you for that. Um, but what's so amazing about not just, your, you know, complexly, all the shows underneath it that are super educational, love them. Um, you know, it all started with the Vlog Brothers channel. And I mean, I just watched your video on horses and where they came from. And like, I was like, why is this is so interesting? Like, where do these ideas even come from? You've been doing it for how long? When did the well, Vlog Brothers the, channel that's start? That's the problem. When you started in January 1st, 2007, and you've had to make a video at least once a week that whole time, like you, 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 you see ideas everywhere. You have no choice but to. Um, horses are a great example of an animal where the butt is definitely part of the leg. <laughs> You've ever seen a horse butt? Jesus, those things are massive. Oh, yeah. I'm from Texas, <laughs> you know, so I've seen plenty of horses. Um, so take me back. Let's bring it back to Vlog Brothers. What were you doing in your life that you were like, hey, this YouTube thing, let's try it out, you and your brother. And for some context, you're, you and your brother are the biggest overachievers ever um, for some context of uh, who John Green is. You know, he's written uh, The Fault in Our Stars, one of many of the novels he's written. Um, and so where were you guys in your life to start that YouTube channel? Well, um, I was a blogger at that point professionally. I also was doing like freelance web development and design uh, as as nerds did in the mid-2000s. Um, but my primary gig was I was running my own website uh, that was a like environmental technology blog. So all of our money came from getting on Dig and Reddit. Like that was the that was the biz back then. And so I wrote like sort of clickbaity posts about uh, electric cars and and solar panels and stuff. And that was great. I liked it a lot. Uh, but it was very flexible. And also I I kind of recognized that the market was getting weird. Um, that like ads were different, that, uh, you know, a lot of things were consolidating. I was spending more time writing for Yahoo News and Tree Hugger than I was for my own site. And, uh, and, I, and, and also I was just sort of getting tired of clickbait. So like I could have kept doing it. I probably would have kept doing it for a long time or I would have gotten a job at some other publication writing. Um, and my brother at that point was a professional author. Like that's what he did full time. And... He was really obsessed with Lonely Girl, uh, which was this very early vlog that turned out to be 
it was there was a, little, it was a huge conspiracy that was like, is this real? Is if it's not, if it's fake, then that's okay. But if it's real, then this girl might actually be in trouble. Yeah, and uh, and Zay Frank, of course, was a huge inspiration and was operating all throughout 2006. And uh, and John was super into that stuff, and he was like, hey, do, I think we should make a video blog together. We should do it for a year. We should make a video every day. We'll trade back days. We don't really like hang out very much we don't really talk very much so like we could be brothers again and also like i think he had some thought that he sort of already had an audience because of his books small this was way before the fault in our stars um so there was sort of an audience there sort of maybe a marketing opportunity there for his for his work but more like this is really weird and cool and and because so this has always been the, the case in our brotherhood. Like if John thinks something is good, then I think it is great. Um, and that's like sort of a younger brother thing, I think, where like anytime John was like, you should listen to this song. I'd be like, I listened to it 10,000 times. <laughs> I'm obsessed. I, I can play it on the guitar. I can play it on drums. I can sing every note. Um, and uh, yeah, so that and and because of that, I think that I like I was the more obsessed one, even though he was the door into it. And I just became super, super interested. And I felt like immediately in, you know, 2007 and 2008 that this was going to be like culture changing stuff. And I didn't really understand how like I did. I would never have predicted what what happened. But I definitely knew that it was going to be as like as big of a deal as TV, and uh, and that being in on the ground floor of that, being part of the shaping of the culture of that, would be, you know, a once in a lifetime opportunity, and also like something that I would uh, always get to feel good about forever. And and even if I never did anything again, <laughs> it would be like I did that. <laughs> yeah. Now I can go to my normal job at the grocery store. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Things escalated pretty pretty quickly on YouTube, right? Yeah. Um, but I'm yeah. I, I was maybe a part of like the third wave. There's been so many waves, but um, you know, I kinda grew up watching you guys. One of my uh my my biggest inspiration was actually Grace Helbig. Um she was the the first one who I watched consistently. Um, because YouTube was always something I looked up for tutorials and stuff. I, I never saw it as entertainment until Grace Helbig. Um, and so can you, can you talk to kind of that initial community and what it was like, what it felt like? I mean, it, cause it has changed a lot. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean the, the big change is that it's just so big. And so like, and, and part of that bigness is just its bigness, but, uh, but part of it is that it's just more types of people. And you see this in YouTube rewind where like it, YouTube rewind is celebrating all these people you've never heard of. And that it's partially because they don't speak your language. It's partially because, you know, there have always been very broad varieties of humans. And to some extent, one of the, the things that was very obvious from the beginning of YouTube is like, we're going to be making content for people who don't usually have content made for them. Like LGBT content was huge in the beginning of YouTube, you know, William Sled uh, and and what the buck. And then and you also had. Uh, lots of Asian, like what I I don't know if this is the right thing to say, but I, I at the time called the hot Asians where on TV Asians were like, like they were solving math problems. Yeah. They were doctors. And that they was were, it. Yeah. yeah. And then it was like, but Ryan Higa is like, not, he's not about like doing good in school. He's about like being cool. And so, so like, you know, Asian 
Americans were happy to have themselves be representative in positive ways, but there's more than one positive way to be represented. It doesn't have to be like, you're always the computer scientist, smart person. It can also be like, you're Ryan Higa, you're hilarious, you're savvy, you're hot, you're a good dancer, you're everything, you're the whole package. And um, so, so like that was, you know, there were all these markets that were not having content made for them. And that has continued to the point where it's like, I have nothing to do with this market. Like it's this is this is for, you know, I'm f almost 40 years old now. So this is for like, you know, 11-year-old girls. Like I I am not going to feel like this is part of my community. But back in those early days, because it wasn't as many people and also because it was sort of more homogenous where like the you know, the people who had access to high-speed internet were going to be demographically similar. The people who were nerdy enough to be on YouTube were going to be demographically similar. The people who were, you know, old enough to have let their parents, like, didn't have to have their parents be like, I don't understand what this is and I'm not going to let you use it. Uh, and that felt, and I think because it, it felt really special and I try to, like, keep my eye on the fact that it felt special because it was homogenous. And so, like, this, like, my nostalgia brain wants to be like, I wish it was the old way. But actually, that's just me saying, like, I wish it was only for me. I wish I wish that no one else had access to this amazing tool. I, I want to I control it and have it be all about, all, like, only stuff that I care about. Um, and when we started VidCon, it really was, like, I just invited the people I liked, you know? I was like, here are the people who, and that was almost it, like that was pretty much everybody. Yeah. And, and so um, who were some of the names that were at that first VidCon? Uh, Rhett and Link were there. Um, so it's like, it's different. It's people who like, who are still big and people who like have gone on to do other things. Um, so Tazon Day, I think was there. Rhett and Link were there. Uh, Shay Carl was there. I have the little pamphlet somewhere around here. I have my VidCon year one. Yep, here it is. Are you ready to see how big it is? <laughs> wow, that's amazing. Yeah, uh, Charlie McDonald was there. Yeah, uh, Jim Lauterbach, who's now the the like GM of the conference, was there. So he was a he was running um, Revision Three then. Ian and Anthony from Smosh were there. Daystorm was there. Oh gosh, Ryan Higa was there. Shane. Shane, Timothy DeLaghetto, who's still crushing it. Dave Days, Michael Buckley, Phil DeFranco was there. Yeah, I mean, all these people are yeah. <laughs> still crushing it on all levels. Yeah, Justine was there. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm skipping over a lot of names. <clears throat> John Green, Julia Nunes, who's still making amazing music, Brittany Lewis Taylor, uh, uh, Mimi Molly, you know Molly. She's She's gone on to do other things. Tessa! Tessa, oh my gosh. It's so <clears throat> funny. You know, she was the first person who I actually reached out to because I was living in Nashville. Um, so when I had when I had the bump of 4,000 subscribers to 100K, um, the only YouTuber who was living where I was living was Tessa. And I was such a big fan of her and the, the music videos she would make. And um, yeah, she's one of the first people I reached out to. And I freaking love Tessa. Um, so with this small community turning into oh snap this is a business right like okay 
this is something more than just like hanging out with friends, creating things. Um, what was the, besides making VidCon an actual thing and making it profitable, I mean, I'm sure that could be a whole two hour conversation. Um, what was your first reaction to like what you need to monetize? Is it like video sponsorships? Was VidCon your, your first path to like profitability? What was that first thing that you paid attention to? Well, it wasn't VidCon. The first year of VidCon, I think that all of us combined took home $10,000. Um, so that was split between like five people, <clears throat> which is a great payday uh, to, to, <laughs> to an extent. But in perspective, yeah. But like, yeah. it's not gonna, it's not gonna <laughs> like cover the year's expenses. Um, <clears throat> and, uh, but, but we were making money before then. And, and I remember getting the email from YouTube saying like, you like you're in the partner program like we're doing like we were the sec in the second round of people invited into the partner program and uh and there was all this like you had to get on the phone and have these conversations and agree to all these copyright things and like it was it was a whole thing signed contracts and now they're just like here's your money exactly um, <laughs> you did it you got the right numbers <laughs> don't don't screw check, up check, check. exactly <laughs> um and uh, yeah, so so that when that ha like when I go back and I look at like because you, your tax return tells you like your last ten years of income on it, and I did that in 2017 or 2016 when I could still see my 2017 income my, my 2007 income, and I was shocked <laughs> to to because uh, I never felt and part of this is because like I am lucky and my grandfather was a businessman and so I had like a cushion a just in case cushion that was enough that I could screw around and try stuff. And I never, I never dipped into it, but I knew it was there. Um, but that year I made like, I made like 16 grand. Um, so it was, it, it, but it never felt tight. You know, my rent was $500 a month. I ate macaroni and cheese and like the, the old cakes, you know, a grocery store, old cakes, where they're like, we I'm need to get rid of this cake. Oh, and you're like, oh, yeah. Cakes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was like, what brand is that? <laughs> is that like zebra cakes? Yeah. <laughs> that is so like, we funny. made this cake and it's getting, oh, it's on the edge. <laughs> so, it's, so it's three bucks and it's a whole cake. Wow. Um, so, uh, and, and like that felt like luxury to me where I was like, I was out, I was living on my own and I goes, I can eat a cake whenever I want. Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah, that. Um, I mean, I was 27 years old. I shouldn't have been eating little cakes, but, but I wasn't making great money. And it, it's possible that I also didn't report some income. Like I had some money from my freelance stuffs and yeah. And we just the life of the a law. freelancer. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, Oh, I have to pay quarterly. Okay. <laughs> oh God. Quarterly. And it's like, uh, some, I've had some big years and some smaller years that, and it's like, pay your quarterly taxes based on last year's income. And I'm like, I'm not making that <laughs> exactly. kind of money anymore. My life is different now. That's the exact <laughs> conversation I just had with my accountant. I'm like, listen, yeah. I did really well last year, so I can kind of chill and focus on other things this year. So I am not paying those estimated yeah. quarterlies. Yeah. <laughs> um, so God, that that life, that creative life. Yes. Um, boom. So so, but but when in the when the so to to us like the first time money came into youtube and this was before pre-rolls so this was when you were just getting like those little pop-ups on the screen um and then they'd share the ads that were that were like in the sidebar next to you um you know the cpms were dirt but like we were like we're making money off youtube um 
so that was that was a at the time that felt like a bonus like this youtube thing wasn't right. full time we were, were you I was still, still keeping up your blog yeah i was still making most of my money from the blog i was making money from doing web development and like i was just like piecing it together um and it was kind of like it was just like po like i was just out of grad school and i was still living my grad school life in grad school i wasn't getting paid at all so um that like this was just like you know it's like an infinitely more money than I had then. Yeah. <laughs> That's uh, so but the, the, so so then like as the partner revenue continued to climb and as like the the Vlogbrothers channel got bigger, like eventually I I I think maybe in 2009 stopped doing the blog uh full time and and transferred into being a YouTuber. And it wasn't until and I had also started dftba.com by then, which is the sort of the other company I am CEO of, which is a merch company that works with creators and we that business model has changed dramatically over the years like we were literally a record label at first and like we wow. the majority of what we sold was cds um and like itunes stuff so like that was where most wow. of our money came from which is not the same we still have some cds in the warehouse there is a shelf <laughs> and a, and <laughs> one like a, singular shelf in a eight thousand square foot warehouse there's a shelf of cds <laughs> um and they still occasionally one will go out the door we sell more vinyl than cds now which is yeah it's coming back wild um, so I'd started that by then and that was m making some money and, and through merchandise, we were making some money through selling CDs. Um, uh, and, and John never, John is, has always been more worried about money than me, despite the fact that he's always had the stable income, like, um, and that, you know, changed a lot in 2014 when the Fault in Our Stars came out and John was sort of like quietly aware. And I was kind of oblivious to this, that like he uh, needed money never again. And I still kind of did. And so like there, there was never a tension about that, but I think in part because John like was very, uh, aware of it and, and did his best to like, make sure that that wasn't a thing in our brotherhood because like that can be a thing, you know? Yeah. It's crazy running a channel, running something that ha is tied to your livelihood with another person is a unique experience. And I'm sure you've encountered some hurdles with that. <laughs> Yeah. And I like, it's not unusual, you know, Rhett and Link, Smosh, um, the Gregory brothers, the Fine brothers, you know, there's lots of people who sort of like d were able to do it because there were two of them or, or more. And I think that that actually really helps because it means that if you can trust that other person as if they are you and you understand their abilities the way you understand your own abilities and you and you know that they're not going to ever ever screw you over because your family is more important than your tv show uh, then you basically have twice as many hours a week to to make stuff it's, and like that's like a huge, what i wish i could do just <laughs> yeah, rep huge, replicate myself exactly you know? it's a competitive advantage over all these schmucks with only one of them <laughs> i know i mean i definitely <laughs> want to talk about hiring because that's delegation yeah. is probably the hardest thing um that i've had to do um and so with that with you know okay so there's vlog brothers there's um vidcon there's the the merch company um what was the first show that you developed outside of you and the vlog oh. brothers uh i don't know i will i like my instinct is to say it was the lizzie bennett diaries but i'm not sure okay. if that's correct i think it's because I, I mean it is. it's crazy how many there are hank yeah <laughs> uh what 
when that came out 2012 it kind of all happened at the same time i don't know when did sideshow start well the first one that i know what the first one was it was truth or fail which did not succeed um it was a trivia show which i love and have tried to resurrect that's a good show name truth or fail yeah yeah so truth or fail was uh annotations based trivia game where i would be like here's the question uh, and like it's a true false th- or it's like two facts and one of them is true and one of them is false and you have oh. to cook in the true fact and it's then like it takes you to the next video and either I'm like you got it right and or I like you got it and it's just like uh, it seems like a lot of work so maybe it was it's a okay. huge amount of work <laughs> maybe it's and, okay that it didn't and succeed. it happened so like the part of why I liked it is like for one view you got all these impressions so you'd get 10 impressions per per playthrough but it happened at the exact moment that YouTube was like, we don't care about impressions anymore. We care about watch time. And each video was like 45 seconds long. So YouTube would never surface them. And so it was just like contrary to the algorithm. I think if I brought it back now, and this is like, I've I've said this every six months for the last eight years. I think if I brought it back now, it would succeed. Um, but I, I have not. <laughs> that, uh, uh, I, I mean it sounds intriguing and all the the youtube uh not youtube red shows what's it called premium um there's there's a lot of interactive stuff now with uh oh, i'm blanking on his name the gamer Markiplier guy did one yeah i mean that's really cool i watched a few of those yeah so i think i absolutely and like and then he shared his stats from that day right and it's just like because because there's like you get you know multiple impressions for every view through um I'm trying to find uh, how old SciShow is because I think it's probably like the ones of the ones that are still around today. I think SciShow and Crash Course basically started at the same time, and they uh, and I think that SciShow started slightly beforehand. So this episode was December second, two thousand eleven. That was a little bit before Lizzie Bennet Diaries. It all sort of happened at the same time. Yeah, and that and SciShow and Crash Course were funded by Google as part of their YouTube original programming grants. Okay. Awesome. And and what was the the reason that you felt so passionate about? I mean, this is like online education. You learned something, right? I mean, was there something in your past that like for me personally, sharing the creative process came from, oh my gosh, I haven't learned anything beneficial to what I want to do in school. If I can like siphon off all this information from other people and share it with the world, then like, hey, that's exciting. Um, what what was your kind of reason to go the more um, helpful route with your content? <laughs> well, I mean, you're, yeah, it's, you mean to, you don't mean to, as, as opposed to yours, right? Because your content is extremely helpful. No. Oh, thank you, yeah. thank you. Okay. Um, no, yeah, just, <clears throat> But because just compared to so most many... content on YouTube. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I was trying to be delicate with it. Yeah. yeah, well, I think so, so there was a few things that went into that. One, like when, uh, so, I think the statute of limitations is up on this and I can go ahead and say it. When YouTube's original programming grant, they had this $100 million that they were like, we're going to make high quality content on YouTube. We have a problem. You know, like like they saw this as like as an, as an issue with the platform. We don't have enough stuff that looks polished and fancy. You know, Unilever and uh, and and Johnson & Johnson are looking at this and they're saying, this doesn't look like something we'd like our, our ads next to. So we need to make YouTube look shinier. And so they were going to put $100 million into this. And we got an email um, and it was like, okay, so here's the situation. And they, did, they didn't say this, but this was the clear, clearly the, the gist of it. 
we put together this hundred million dollars and we decided to give all of that money away and we didn't ask any YouTubers, we only asked Hollywood production companies and we have gotten feedback that that is going to be seen as very negative in the community. And I'm like, yeah, you, you, you think? Yeah, oh, I, I'm shocked to hear they, people might wow. find that as uh, but so. But honestly, so, that sounds like some good self-awareness from the get-go. I don't. I guess, sometimes yeah, they, they struggle they with that even that. today. Yeah. You know? So they were like, "You have a week put together a deck." Um, wow. And so, like, we got that email, and I think Rhett and Link and the Fine Brothers and Philip DeFranco got that email, and a few other people got that email. And we put together a deck in a week, and and I had a list of like thirty shows. <laughs> and they were everything from like from like model trains to Pilates. Like I was going just like just spr spray and pray like anything. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> and and John was like, okay, what do we? What are we good at? <laughs> And at that point, we'd done some educational stuff on the Vlogbrothers channel, because as I said, I think earlier in the podcast, like when you've been doing like when you have to do it every week, you just do whatever. Um, and so I did a video on the circulatory system once because I didn't have another idea that week. And like I'm my undergrad is in biochemistry. I have a MS in environmental studies. Like I like I'm overeducated. Um, also, I knew that we were going to keep getting older and that we would be less cool as time went on. And so, like, one thing you can be less cool at and still succeed at is educational stuff. Um, and... Uh, it's very thoughtful of you to think of that when, you know, you're oh, in your 20s. yeah, I was very aware. Yeah. Well, first of all, I, like, first year on YouTube, I was 27. So I was okay. married. I was... I had a job. I had had other jobs. Like, I'd had a, like almost a whole career already you know that that in that millennial way where it's like you're 27 you've gone through your first career already um and uh so i'm 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 barely not a millennial uh i think it depends on how you count i'm like on the other side of the spectrum oh, with 94 yeah because yeah. i was yeah. 94 and i think it starts at 95 yeah and then I think that like, there's also the social good component where it's like, if we're gonna get a million bucks from YouTube, like what's the right thing to do with it? Um, and it wasn't, we didn't get a million bucks for one show uh, and we pitched two. We said, you know, we'd like, like here's, here's SciShow. It's like science news. Um, it's, you know, it's like looking back, it's like profiling science, like historic scientists and like, you know, just like interesting science stuff. And here's Crash Course and it's like, pretty like it's very clearly attempting to help teachers and students with current curricula in the u.s so one is sort of more like pop and you know like clickbait crash course is unlike every youtube channel i've ever made in that most of the views come in the in the like years after it gets upload uploaded like crash course engineering was getting twenty thousand views a video when it was uploaded and now all of those videos have more than a million views that like it's just search people are like i am taking this class now no one wants to watch a video about physics for like on on any on tuesday they want to watch a video about physics the day before the test and that's and we can see in our graph on our viewership graphs like when and stuff. ap tests are yeah it's just like whoop i guess it's ap week and then for for years of running crash course i'd always get really worried i'd see like our, our viewership was crashing and i'm like what's happening it's summer the kids aren't in school this is like this is this channel is different um so the so we pitched both of those ideas and youtube gave us 
said yes to both. And that was, and we almost didn't say yes to that because we didn't have any infrastructure. We had, we, John and I, I think at that point had both hired an assistant and that was it. Like we had a person who was like helping us with email and we hired extremely overqualified people to help us with email though. So it turned out that both of those guys uh, you know, had hired and fired. They had done production, like Stan had done production before. Michael Gardner had run, uh, run like run businesses. Uh, he was the executive director of a nonprofit before I hired him as so my assistant. So did they just want to be close to the action, this new I YouTube think thing? That's, I think that's part of it. it like right. that was part of it. I think part of it was like, for, for Michael, you know, that nonprofit that he was executive directing, like, couldn't afford him basically and he recognized that and he was like i will i want to be on your board i don't think i should be your ed um and so he he took took this opportunity and i interviewed two people for that position and uh and and i had three people in the final applicant pool and one of them was emily grassley who went on to host the brain scoop and now works at the chicago field museum um and uh, is a big youtuber so like at that point she was just a grad student or I even maybe even just undergrad. Um, so so and and she and she would have killed it if I had hired her. And the other guy I hired, I like got him into my house because I did the interviews in my living room. And I was like, I, this guy, <laughs> I'm ter- I'm scared to have him in my home. <laughs> <laughs> so I got very lucky. Things basically. to think about. Yeah. yeah. When running a business out yeah. of your home. Because yeah. I mean, YouTube was that in the beginning, there wasn't this pressure, but all of a sudden, I guess when you get funding from YouTube, yeah. oh, that changes things. So and then so, we went, we went yeah. from basically zero employees to our first two hires. And then those two hires helped us hire the next like six to eight people. And that is the team that we did Crash Course and SciShow with that first year. Amazing. Okay, let's talk about hiring. Mm-hmm because Hank, I personally need advice. I, I think for for a while now, the past maybe half a year, I've been kind of just low key, like help, like yeah. hiring is hard. Um, but I, I finally added some process around it. And that's what I think lacks a lot with creatives. Um, so first of all, would you consider yourself like a creator first or an operator first? I'm definitely not an operator. Um, I think that I am, if of those two options i am a creator first i i but i think that part of my creative life is uh like my executive roles and my strategic roles so that is much more like i need operations help i all of my companies have coos that are much more involved in the day-to-day business than i am but i but i don't see any of those people as ceos Um, and, and I, like, I, hopefully I am right in that I feel like I'm necessary in the CEO role because of vision and strategy stuff. And, but, and that's all, but that's also like figuring out who to hire. It's also like fixing HR problems, like all that stuff, um, is part of my role and part of what I do. And like, and I, I, I find that stressful, but I also find it creative, um, they're they're big problems to solve, and you have to figure out how to solve them. Uh, so so I I kind of see like a blend there, but I am not an operations person. Um, I uh, 
and like maybe I could be if I had less stuff to do, but it's it has to be granular and you have to be paying a lot of attention to the numbers and like I can use a spreadsheet, but I'm like uh, like I'm not anywhere close to the level of proficiency in Excel as all of the people yeah. who I employ to do that. Oh yeah, yeah. When since you started as a writer, web developer, and now you're making videos, um, and all of a sudden you have to hire essentially a production team, right? And so, do you think it was because video is hard? Right. There's a lot of things that are involved with it. So, yeah, especially like, you know, you're going to if you even if you have like video people to hire, you're going to be like, OK, forget everything you've learned. With exactly. YouTube now. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And what's what's been so unique in my journey with hiring is they could be amazing editors, but they don't know how to like jump cut properly. Like that has been the biggest challenge for no, me. No, I, I like when I started my company, I made a tutorial video on how to edit a vlog. I was like, I know this, I know this sounds basic, but you're going to have to watch this video about how to do it, how to do a J cut in a vlog. I'm sorry. Like you can't leave that dead space between the jump cuts. You just can't. You, the, the next word has yes. to start before the cut ends. <laughs> Like, it, I'm glad it, it's not just me. I feel like I'm shouting into this void. I'm like, you don't understand. YouTube editing is different. Yeah, no, I did. I hundred percent did that. I, I like went through and I edited a whole. Like I had it at a SciShow video, um, and for years we sent that video to every new person at the company, yeah. and it was just like, See, yeah. watch the CEO edit a video for <laughs> thirty minutes, and like, and, I think and, that's what's and lacking then, for and me. Push yeah. against like your training, right. you know? Right, yeah. yeah, I think I'm I'm taking shortcuts in that I have over like 400 videos, just like go watch my videos, yeah. you know? And you, but like the thing is like no one who, may, who like watches a video knows about, knows that like you're doing like overlaps right. and knows right. how tight a jump cut is. Right. You know, knows like the difference between like two frames this way, two frames that way, it doesn't sound right. And like, and audio because the, popping the whole and... the whole point yeah and the whole point of that is that it's not noticeable like it's it's you're trying to create content that has no space for somebody to remember that they have an email they need to write or that <laughs> exactly. reddit is there waiting for them with cats and, exactly uh and, and so like the the process is different and, and like it's created to to have completely uninterrupted uh like you know, visual and auditory and information flow. Right. And that, um, you know, you, it's hard to see, even if for a professional editor, it's hard to see. And so you like, you have to teach it. Yeah. And we teach it. So do you think that was the biggest thing with hiring in the beginning is literally breaking down every single little thing, having one video, one Google doc, whatever it is yeah. to send out yeah. to every single hire. So you don't have to repeatedly yeah. build into different people. Yes, yeah. I think that that is really valuable. And we, we, you know, we're a video production companies. So like we know how to make videos, right? You know how to make a video. And I think it's like, that's leaning into the, um, the, like what you're good at, you know? It's saying like this, I know how to communicate this way. And so I'm gonna use that for my team. Um, and it's, so, you know, we don't do it that way anymore in part because like SciShow and Crash Course have really like clear feels. And when people come in and they're doing it wrong, we can just like point to the episode and be like, see, this is the thing you didn't do right. Um, 
but but like we do still have videos that people watch when they come into the company like we have a like a security video that people watch and it's like here's how, how we do passwords we never email a password ever we you know like we basically like go th go through the protocols for how to not get hacked um and you know we never put a to put a password into a like in our you know at, at this point in our team like we have password managers so people don't even know the passwords um like they used to but we have yeah we have that video that everybody watches to make sure that they don't screw up our security protocols uh, because we did get hacked once and we also we got uh invoice scammed at vidcon once where they like people will send really realistic looking invoices google did this where they they paid like 10 million dollars to an invoice scammer um, and it's just like, it looks like one of your vendors and you're like, ah, oh, the vendor had sent in a thing and like, it's, you know, it's $2,000, so it's not a big deal. And then you just send it and then you get another one for like 800 and you send it and you get another one for, you get used to them and you send one for, out for 2,500 and 5,000. And it's just like, ah, ha, ha. Wow. So maybe so. that's why those vendor processes with big companies are such a pain in the ass. It is. Um, Everything, I whenever something is a pain in the ass, stuff, you know, it's because some some dick somewhere yep. made it suck for everyone. Hmm. So true. So true. Okay, guys, as we're entering into our mid-roll to remind you that B&H is the best and they are sponsoring this podcast. Thank you so much, B&H. Uh, the news just came in that Chipotle's white queso is so much better than the old queso. There's two Texans in this room right now. And I can tell you, it's the original, the, their first queso was nothing like what you can get in Texas. And so this white queso, it's a step in the right direction, right? Okay, we're getting there. So it's not what you can get back in Texas. Ooh, I miss queso. Um, but good job, Chipotle. Wow, this mid-roll probably came in at such a random time. You guys are probably so into this Hank podcast and then I just disturbed you with talking about queso. I'm so sorry, but I got to remind you, B&H Photo is the best place to pick up photo gear video gear, laptops, anything really. I have just thank you B&H for sponsoring this podcast. It's so easy to talk about you guys because I am such a big fan. So in the previous podcast, I've gotten into my podcasting gear and I'll always have that link below if you're curious what I use. Um, that has just been a journey in itself, figuring out my favorite mics and all the things, you know, the different recorders. Um, but recently, I have embarked on the journey of not only getting sound paneling done in the office, you know, I want to, I want to be, I want this podcast to be the best it can be. And so that's what led to the sound paneling. But now I'm like, I don't want to have to, you know, carry around heavy lights all over my office on C-stands. So we're working on constant, beautiful lighting in the office. And so we're using Aperture 300Ds, uh, 300D Mark II. And I, I used to use the 120D. And those are still amazing lights and super affordable, under $1,000. And I would recommend the Light Dome for beautiful soft light if you're shooting videos. Um, but recently I discovered the joy of having a super powerful, I mean, this thing is so powerful, it emits so much beautiful light, the 300D Mark II. And I'm testing out the lantern light modifier, which basically just spreads out the light 
um, it diffuses it out in every single direction. So it's like a 360 degree diffuser. And um, I, I basically mounted it with the help of Jordan, who just um, informed us about the case of Revelation. Thank you, Jordan. Um, he came over and he's really good at mounting stuff onto the ceiling. So now we have the setup that I don't have to move lights around and it's constant lighting for the podcast. I just flip a switch and uh, Aperture also has a um, an app that you can use. And so whenever guests come in, I press one button and we have perfect lighting and it's off the ground. These lights will just stay on the ceiling. And I've basically set them up for all of the different places that I film in here, which is just, I think it's really going to make a difference and it's going to make it more fun for me to film and just be in a creative state of mind. Sometimes, especially, I'm going to be honest, guys, times like these where you are just kind of glued to the news waiting for things to happen. And of course, we have to be mindful of that. Um, but but sometimes it's just really hard <laughs> to create and me kind of bridging the gap in between uh, all of the things that I have to do in order to film is really helping me. So that's been a fun journey. So if you want to check out any of those lights that I talked about, um, again, B&H Photo is the place to get all of these things and I'll link it in the show notes below. And let's get back to the podcast with Hank because, oh my gosh, it's a good one, right? It. Thank you, Hank, for being on this podcast. Okay. So, um, getting in the nitty gritty, what do you guys use for, uh, like approval processes? Are you all in like the Adobe creative suite and you sync everything? Do you use frame IO for approvals? Like what is the video production workflow? Is it all, you know, tiny teams for, you know, teams of three for each show and everyone meet like, yeah, what's, what's the flow? So the flow is it's SciShow as much as we can, we try to have one person own an episode. So we can't, we don't usually have them in there to shoot it. Um, sometimes they will be in there to shoot it, but like from, uh, so like, well, to, be, to, to begin the flow, uh, scripting and editorial is a separate department. They are in charge of like, like making sure the script is good. Once the script happens uh, and it is performed onto a camera, then the person owns it from receipt of the footage to upload. And so like we don't have a separate upload team, we don't have a separate edit team. We do have a we do, we have played with the idea of having like like a sort of a ingest editor who's like handling that because it's you know, it's fairly low skill work compared with animation and it's like using animators time to edit videos isn't as efficient as it could be, but I do I like the idea of having people own the thing and like they and like do the description and do the tags and understand the whole thing from the beginning to end. And 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 also like it doesn't really make sense to have an animator spending time uploading a video because like that doesn't take no time you know I'm always shocked to be like I'm done with my video and then I'm like why am I still here I've been done for an hour and it's like ah, I was making the thumbnail and I was trying to figure out a good title and I was using YouTube's gigantic clunky upload system <laughs> um, so uh, but we but we have that in place kind of so that for quality control reasons uh, at SciShow. And, uh, and, and then basically we try to empower every person. Uh, and then we, and then we do have like, we send out a, an episode and then we have somebody review it. And it's basically whoever has time to review it, watches it, checks for typos, checks for things that are just like, like occasionally you start at a line and then you restart the line. And then like that first false start gets kept in the edit for some reason. And so like, you're looking out for that stuff. Um, 
and you just don't notice because you've been staring at it for four hours. Um, and uh, and then, yeah, and, and so we have a, that, that review, and that review is just a Slack message. It's like, can somebody review this? Whoever has time to review it, reviews it, sends the feedback on it, and then it gets uploaded. So I, a crash course is much more involved and we use Frame.io and we, uh, and like, and I am not as familiar with it because I'm not a producer on that channel. And uh, so the, uh, that, that process, like crash course goes through so many, so many approvals. So <laughs> because like, if we get a SciShow wrong, we can take it down and it's not a big deal. If we get a crash course wrong and we find out about it like three weeks later, it's just a, it's a nightmare. And you're just like, you're in the YouTube editor because YouTube has its like internal editor. You can only remove things, oh you can't gosh. add things. It's and you're the in worst. there like trying to cut so that the I jump cut doesn't look too bad. I tried to blur my address yeah. before in that <laughs> and I yeah. ended up just blurring the entire five yeah. seconds. Yeah. I was like, yeah, screw yeah, this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, it's good to have that tool there because um, yeah. what would we do otherwise? Uh, except let me upload an alternate version of the video, please. Um, but that, nope. Um, so, that like that's that the crash course is uh it, and it has like the edit and then the edit goes off to the animation team and the animation team sends us their animations which we put on top of the edit and then that goes off to our consultant who's a you know it has a doctorate in the topic we're talking about and they watch the whole thing and they're like that carbon atom is in the wrong place and then it has to go all the way back to the beginning um so crash course is hard and very expensive <laughs> Yeah. Is, yeah, I mean, just listening to it, I'm like, that sounds yeah. exhausting. <laughs> Quality content, every yeah. go, everyone yeah. go watch. Um, that is crazy. And is everyone local to Montana? No. Mm -mm. So we we have some freelancers who are not in Montana. Almost never are our experts in Montana. Um, often our hosts come into the studio in Missoula or Indianapolis. We have a second studio in Indianapolis, um, and so like. It, that that depends on various things like the topic they're covering but also where they are geographically um so we've you know we've flown hosts from the uk to do uh crash courses we've also filmed in la we filmed crash course entrepreneurship in la at the youtube space we filmed some shows at the youtube space we filmed some shows i don't actually know where we ended up filming entrepreneurship i don't think it was at the youtube space i think we just leased a studio um so yeah, we do it all over and our animation team is in Toronto and uh, that, that's not even our company. That's a separate company called Thought Cafe. And uh, yeah, so our, our team, our like managing the footage teams are all in the same place because shipping footage around takes forever. Um, and, and we have to do it for our animation, but that's the only re like time when we actually like move footage from place to place. And, uh, but our editorial team has some remote workers, our sales team, which is one person. You can't have a salesperson in Missoula, Montana or Indianapolis. It's not going to work. <laughs> so they're, they're in well, DC and I so mean, they can go that, to New York and LA really fast. Yeah. Yeah. That's something I wanted to ask you was, did you always know Montana? Like, first of all, why Mon Montana? Is it your family? No. Uh, no, I lived here at the time. Uh, it was not a strategic choice, Sarah. Because <laughs> <laughs> I feel like, you know, you're, you're living your life. It'd be very tempting to pack up and be yeah. based in L.A., right? It would be easier, um, I, I think, to... Well, 
some things would be easier. It, like one of the great thing about living in Montana is that when somebody invites me to something I don't want to go to, I'm just like, I'm sorry, I can't go. <laughs> I'm in Montana. <laughs> so, like really hard to get to. It's like a, I don't even have a direct flight. I'm sorry, I can't go. Um, and uh, but there are other advantages. Um, the airport, like honestly, the, it might be the biggest disadvantage to living to like operating a business in a small town is not having nonstops. Um, mm. So if I could get to an airport within an hour that had a nonstop to L.A., that would yeah. be it would change things. Um, and we do have some non. This is hilarious. We have some nonstops to L.A., but only sometimes of the year and only on Tuesdays and Fridays. <laughs> oh, my God. I mean, I can't imagine that being in New York and having my choice of three yeah. that are <laughs> directly around me, you know, and it's like all nonstops tickets to LA are super cheap. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So that is not great. Um, though I also don't love flying anyway, and I'm not going to get coronavirus this way. I just stay in my there house. There you go. There you go. The, uh, so other disadvantages like the talent pool is of course smaller, but at the same time, you know, we're not trying to hire 20 people a year. Like we're not that kind of company and I don't have any interest in, in running one of these like 10 X startups that grows 10 X a year forever and, uh, and takes venture capital money and like just grinds and grinds and grinds themselves into the ground for something that will, might not happen. Exactly. Um, well, I wanted to ask you about that. Where does that go back to like the way you were raised? Cause you said your, your dad's a businessman too, right? So your dad and your grandpa. So, why do you not have that desire? Because it would almost seem natural for you to, okay, you have this influence, you're building these companies. How do we make this the biggest thing ever? Yeah, I like, there's a couple of things. One is my, like my dad is really like into that, uh, into like this way of running businesses. My dad, uh, so my, my mom's grandfather, my mom's dad is the one who is like a business person and like was a CEO of an oil company for a little while, but like mostly was in the paper industry. Um, he was an engineer, got into the paper industry, uh, worked his way up to be a CEO in making paper. And then that wow. his company so got what acquired. So you're saying he's Michael Scott. Yeah. Well, and then his company got acquired by Time uh, because wow. they were vertically integrating so they could make their Oh, wait, hold newspapers. on. A paper, like not actual He's not no, he making made paper. paper. Oh, he no, made okay, paper so... out of trees. And okay. then uh, Time acquired that company so that they could print their magazines more oh, cheaply. Makes sense. Um, and he was the executive and he moved up and became an executive at Time. Um, so that's that. And then like, so he was just like a business guy, ran businesses. Um, and the family is huge. So he had, he had three kids and all those three kids had lots of kids. Uh, so, and we're all close and it's a great family. Um, and... So, uh, yeah, so, and then, and like, so he, it was real, like, I don't like when it, we, this is such a short podcast for all the ground we're covering, but like my dad married into this like fairly wealthy family and he was very working class growing up. And I think that he has a really unique perspective on it from that, like with that lens, um, where he, you know, really wanted to like make good for us, but at the same time, like was really like aware of and critical of people who were just wealthy for being wealthy's sake, people who got all this money and all they could do with it was get more money and like never think about what they were doing on the way there. And and my mom was the same way. Like she like, they, like obviously they get along for a reason. Um, and like my mom was always very active and like she was a community organizer while I was growing up and like 
worked for the city and worked for Disney, like helping them on like sustainability initiatives. And my dad ended up working at the Nature Conservancy for a long time. And then he was in commercial real estate. So he knows all this stuff. My dad has done everything. He was a commercial fisherman. He was a taxi driver. Like he was a pilot. (laughs) Uh, So it's ridiculous life. Um, And yeah, and, and like my dad, like, he sends me these books. I'm like, here's how you grow a sustainable business. And and I've taken investment in companies and I know that it kind of sucks. Like you can't make your own decisions anymore. You have to be, it has to be to some extent about, um, you know, like b- what your investors want. And, and that means that like you have this other stakeholder. Like for, for us, we have basically two stakeholders. Uh, we have the people who watch the videos and we have the people who work for the company. And that's very simple. Like we have to take care of both of those people. And then we have this this third thing that's like, these are the people who are telling you that you have to sacrifice for those two groups for our benefit. I understand that that's necessary and that like that is how the economy works in America. And like how, like, how else are you going to do it, right? Like these are the people with the money, they have the power, you're going to have to like work with them. But if you don't have to, I don't see why you should. So if you can find ways not to do it, then like then you only have those two stakeholders. And two stakeholders is much easier to balance between than three. In in any situation, it's why marriages are usually two people. Like it's very hard. It's much easier to balance between the needs of two people than three. <laughs> so yeah. um, Oh, 100%. And yeah, so that and <laughs> so that is yeah, I think part of it I also like I I have been really uh, like part of why I'm interested in business is trying to do it differently. And I think that that's really important. I think it's important for progressive people to realize who might be sort of resistant to, uh, to, to business because, you know, of the damage that has been done by lots of, uh, you know, sort of profit first businesses, you know, investor first businesses that, um, that like they're like, they're a huge part of the world economy is like, you know, the entire tech industry is like 7% of the U.S. economy. It, wow. It doesn't seem possible, right? And like a huge part of the economy is small businesses with 1 to 20 employees. And and countries where that is more the case are more equal and they are like and they are more stable and they are healthier. Germany is the best example of this, where almost every company in Germany has fewer than 500 employees. And like... The, and there are, you know, there's Siemens and there's like, there's exceptions to that, but there are so many of these like sort of middle sized companies in Germany where America is just not good at that because as soon as a company has 50 employees or a hundred employees, it gets acquired. Um, and, and I, you know, like, obviously I've, I've also been through that process of like doing an acquisition and it, it's, you know, it's a little, it's a little bit wonderful. It's a little bit terrible. And like it, you know, there's always pieces of you that kind of wishes it didn't happen, but also pieces of you that are so happy that it's like the most ambivalent I've ever felt about anything is, is selling a company. And also the process itself is very terrible. Um, (laughs) it takes forever. And you're trying to run a company and you like also have to do this other thing. Yeah. And I can imagine that it's, it would be an extreme relief to especially sell an events company. And that's why where, that's why it happened. It's just such a stressful business. And like yeah. like being There's a public so facing logistics. CEO of a company where anything can go wrong and yeah. like 
it was too much stress where like, you know, like these four or five days a year, not just that I was betting like that company on it, but I was kind of betting like my public image on it. And so like that, that that's a kind of a selfish, selfish reason, but like, you know, ultimately like I, like the, the level of uh, stress that I was experiencing was a little unsustainable. So I had to, and, and, and it wasn't good for the company either. Um, and I, I feel like for a long time, I've sort of held VidCon back by not being aware of the state of the internet anymore. Like I'm 39 and like, I'm not on TikTok. And um, so like that, that, that. You're not on TikTok. Do you watch it? I do watch TikTok. Yeah. <laughs> we, have, we got into to, a, a, a Twitter thing recently. I'm so intrigued by the, the people who are on it, the future of it. Um, but it's still very, you know, you, you've seen firsthand if the platform doesn't have a sense of respect for the creators and they don't um, at least try to help them in some way in terms of bringing in brands or making money, um, I think that platform can be in danger. Yeah, yeah. And and like what TikTok is betting on right now is that it is so cool that people, there will always be people underneath who will come into that space and like if you say i'm not happy with tiktok tiktok will be like okay well then we'll start putting we'll start featuring this creator who is over the moon to be getting any kind of attention next in the feed that won't last forever and i think that we're like in the beginning of that transition now and what what ends up happening is that like creators get creators on their side and so even you know, when, when Ethan Klein comes out and says, like, YouTube is completely screwing us. And when, like, every, and, like, a lot of smaller creators are Ethan Klein fans, then, like, they come in and they're like, I, like, I will not be a party to this. And I think that that will, that will eventually happen on TikTok. I think it'll be slower because the audience is younger and they're going to be less receptive to that. They're, they don't want, like, a complicated idea of what it is. Um... But I also worry about TikTok just because it is so much candy. Like it is really, it is really candy. You sit it's, there and yeah. just, I mean, it, an hour will pass and I'll be like, wait, what yeah. just happened? No, and that hasn't happened since Vine. So it's an interesting, yeah. you know, there's a little bit of nostalgia from it, um, but the audience is so much younger. So sometimes I'll be watching stuff and for, I mean, I'm 25. So, you know, I don't, I don't know what to say about that, but it's the first time where I've been like, oh, I'm a little out of touch all of a sudden, mm -hmm. you know? And it's, yeah. it's a, it's well, a strange feeling. It's, it's also the nature of the platform is so uh, sort of mutational and like th there is always a new thing. And it's like, right. you know, those TikTok teens are super out of touch with the Twitter memes. Like they don't, you know, like it, we're true. all out of touch with something. Um, That's true. Okay, thanks for making me feel better because I am on the Twitter game. Twitter is ready my place. at any moment. Yeah. Oh yes. Oh yes. Um, yeah, you're old. Sorry, it happened. <laughs> I know. God, title of this: Sarah is old. Um, so, with all these different things, what are you most excited about right now? I think we we talked about um, you know VC and bootstrapping and stuff like that, and you recently announced that you're giving away fifty thousand dollars in funding to a small business. Um, so, can you tell me a little bit about that? Because that's very exciting. Yeah. So, I've realized at some point that like people would say to me like, "You're so like all of your businesses succeed," and and I have like a secret. It, tool that no one else has, which is like a hundred thousand to two hundred thousand people who support my work. Um, like VidCon 
we were able to market it to those people and say, here's this thing that we're doing. And, you know, a lot of the people who went to the first VidCon were there to basically say, like, we I believe in you, Hank. Um, and and that's a really powerful tool that like no business has access to. And this is something I say to creators all the time. Like you, we all spend a lot of time marketing products that aren't ours. And you know this, you've heard this, like we should spend some time create like marketing products that are ours. And that doesn't necessarily mean t-shirts. T-shirts is fine. But at DFTBA, we don't, we don't think about t-shirts as like the growth industry. One, because like people are like, a lot of our audiences are getting older and we don't wear graphic tees as much. Um, but but like the, the real growth is saying to creators, like what's your product? You know, we wanna m help you make a thing that you believe in that's different and that's interesting. And that, you know, we've like all of our biggest products are are not, you know, shirts. They're subscription, like pin subscriptions or uh, like, Kurtz Gazat does this amazing yearly calendar. This was all their idea. Like not, we, I'm not taking credit for that. Um, that like, you know, is is basically a tentpole event for their channel now. So like, what is the thing? And that, and like for us, that was VidCon and it was Crash Course and SciShow and it was the Lizzie Bennett Diaries and it was DFTBA. And like these things are, were supported n not just by like our ability to put a little bit of money into it, which was like not, like not the, secret to the success, it was supported by the community. And so what I want to hear is like somebody with a different perspective than me, different skills than me, what what product is out there or what business is out there that like we can lend our support to, whether that's like actually helping it with design services or marketing services, or it's, you know, just saying like, like we are all now brand ambassadors for this company um, and and like, in exchange for that, like we are the business accelerator. In exchange for that, we want you to give ten percent of your profit to charity forever, and I like so, like, which is I, a bold statement. I have I don't you know? I don't know if this gonna work. <laughs> <laughs> it might be a terrible idea, um, and uh, but but I don't think I wouldn't want to put put uh, like all of our energy behind something that wasn't doing that. Like DFTBA now gives all, like all of John and I's profit goes to charity now because like, that's what we like, that makes that business much more interesting to me. If like every time we sell a shirt, like money goes to partners in health to build the, like a hospital for, you know, pregnant women in a place where one in 17 women will die in childbirth. Like that is much more motivating to sell that shirt than, than like, oh, I'm going to get an extra $6. Like that's not what I, at this point, I like, and I, you know, part of, and part of the advantage of living in Montana is being able to see the difference between you know, one, like that, like there's a huge difference between 1 million and $2 million in net worth. Uh, whereas in some places, I think that that difference is completely invisible and that it's just like when, like, and there's a huge difference between making a hundred thousand and $200,000 and, and a huge difference between tip and like all, like if I lived in New York, it would be so easy to have all of the money that I made just evaporate. And like though, like places like that are designed to make you feel like you don't have enough to make, to, to like, and, and to always have a service for the next level of income. Nowhere in Missoula, Montana, it, it is anyone assuming that someone has, like that someone makes more than $100,000 a year because not very many people do. Like it's just not economically efficient to create systems to absorb that 
yeah that much capital well in new york in terms of how many people are here in such a small little island and then it was ranked like number the number fourth uh, biggest city for millionaires just you know out and about so it is interesting how um that attributes to everything the way you feel the way you need to run your business um and i'm sure in montana you're not paying up to 50 percent taxes <laughs> no no it's lower yeah yeah um, the, <laughs> yeah so there there's that and i and, and i mean taxes is part of it but like so is cost of living generally like obviously very different and and like cost of running a business is lower because your employees cost of living is lower the cost of rent like renting a building is lower buying a building um, and but like really like a huge advantage is is you know I am ambitious enough on my own I want enough on my own I have enough of this drive on my own that I don't need to be in a place where I'm comparing myself constantly to people who are doing just a little bit better than me or even a lot better than me and like feeling like I don't have enough even though I have way more than enough. Yeah. And it's really good self awareness. <laughs> well, I think that if I hadn't been here when I did it, I wouldn't have it. Um, right, right. And you know, all my like, you know, like I have friends who are school teachers and farmers, and uh, you know, like like make who will work their asses off and make you know the normal amount of money a year. And it's you know, like to to ever feel like I I only ever feel like I have too much, um, and that's the right way to feel. Um, because of that, do you ever feel? Because I'm the type of person I don't know what word you would put to it to describe it but because i've had many years of my life like striving for the dream right and that i i grew up in a culture of just like say yes to everything you're going to attract more serendipity and you know it's it's done well for me but now when i have this platform and i have uh you know, opportunities coming in that make me money. It's almost like I can't turn it down because what would 18 year old Sarah say? Cause she was starving for that. Yeah. So it's this, it's this insane I've, cycle. I did a of whole like, talk on this. You did? Okay. Well, please yeah. tell me your insights. Uh, the, the, the talk is I, I entitled it, fuck your dreams. And the main takeaway is you have no obligation to your former self. They're wow. dumber than you and they don't exist. Wow, <laughs> dropping truth. Yeah, because it's like subconsciously, I'm like, oh my God, that Sarah who is in Nashville and only eating oatmeal and, you know, wanted to drop out of college so bad, she would never say no to this right. brand deal. Well, what I, what I would say to, to you today is not like, like, you know, don't, I, I think that like loyalty to, to ourselves is important. And I think that like understanding our journey is important. Um, but I will, what I will say to you is like, say yes to things that you want to, that you like are going to enable you and like enable you to do the things that you want to do. And like, absolutely. And drive like the, I think that like, so I, I'm can be internally critical of like hustle culture and like, you know, push and push and push, but like we need fuel. And if you don't have fuel, you don't get out of bed. So like everybody has some fuel and, uh, and so like find the sources of fuel and when they are healthy, hold on to them. And when they are unhealthy, recognize it. And I'm not saying that you're never going to burn unhealthy fuel. I do it too. I some, some a lot of the times when I have been most productive and done the best work have been when I was feeling inadequate or 
like it was revengey because like people I hated were succeeding and like those things are unhealthy absolutely um but but like but I but recognize it when you're doing it and and know that it's not gonna sustain you forever and then like find the healthy fuels too because there are lots of those and those can be like being part of you know, being part of a cool, interesting, big story or helping other people. Like you were talking, like, I think that you, part of the reason you like doing this podcast is because it helps other people succeed in their creative endeavors and like, and find, find a way to, to, to sustain their create their creative ambition. And like, that is a wonderful feeling to be able to make stuff that people like. And, and to some extent, it's also okay to be fueled by, you know, appreciation and like, that's always going to be a little bit imbalanced with our, like, you know, our lack of self-worth. Um, and so like appreciation is, is feeding into that and like leaning too much on it can be too much, but there is a healthy balance to it. And, and I think that also like one reason you probably like doing this podcast is because you get to talk to cool people. And like, yes. that's why I love to be on podcasts is because totally. I get to talk like, to cool people. I'm not going to be in Montana asking you for like a lunch date anytime soon. So it's like, oh my gosh, I, I get to spend time with legends like Hank Green. Hello. Yeah. And that's, and that's one of those things where I have to continually remind myself because um, I've been very used to doing the thing where it's like, okay, college was my thing. And then YouTube was a side hustle. And then always pouring in most of my energy to something that wasn't earning me money. Um, but then once those things become your job, it's like, I always need another side project. And so this podcast has now been 70 episodes of me just like, you know, hiring an editor to figure it out. And now 70 episodes in, I'm like, you know what? it would be ideal if I could get back that like $2,000 a month that I'm like spending on just like editing and stuff. So, um, it's selfishly, it's been, it's been really fun and really cool to have these conversations. And, um, and, and now I'm like, okay, maybe we can introduce some sponsors. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, the th yeah, I mean, I, so like there's there is a part of that that is personal strategy. It's like I don't want this to feel like work. And there's part of that, that that's that's business strategy. Like we never launch a channel with sponsors. Um, you know, we want it. We want to like try it out, and see it, like give it every opportunity to succeed and not have any barrier. And we want people to know that we're doing it not just to make money, but because we want this content to exist in the world. And you know, we, we I think we've just done a whole season of Journey to the Microcosmos without an ad. And hmm. we just started Wait, talking can you about tell, our first Tell ad. me a little bit about that channel. Because <laughs> it's, how did you get the idea for that? Holy uh, smokes. I watched a YouTube video. It had like 2 million views. And it was a video of a cell dying in a dramatic fashion. So, you know, oftentimes cells will die and their, you know, their membranes stay intact and like everything sort of turns to goop inside and then they eventually break apart. But this cell, something happened. I don't know if there was like some, some foreign agent in the water or something, but its membrane just broke down. And so like a little bit of it started to leak out and then it like reformed itself. And then all of a sudden, just like, every like it just like a zipper the cell membrane opened up like a slow motion bubble and all of the inside just sort of flowed out and it was like i'm watching this cell die and i'm like feeling emotions i'm like worried about it i'm like you know this happens literally billions of times every time you brush your teeth right and so like there's no there should be no connection to this and i watched it and i was just like it has two million views it's beautiful it made me feel and i wrote to the guy who started who uploaded it and i was like i love this video so much you know do you like 
do you do anything else? And he pointed me to his Instagram. That was like all stuff like this. And then I was like, we should like, and then I went to my Google docs and I was like, I wrote up a proposal for him and I was like, here's what I want to do. I want to do a show. I'll narrate the show. And like, here's like a test script and, and you know, I just pitched the whole thing to him and I was like, here's how much I'll pay you. And here's how much you'll get if this show succeeds. And he was like, I'm in. Um, it's very nice yeah. for you to go to him. I, I think my first thing would be like, oh, okay, I can write off this and do my own thing. And well, the, well, <laughs> but that's, yeah, I mean, yeah. one thing I, I did uh, look and I was like, you know, how much is a microscope? And then it was like, oh, it's not how much is a microscope. It's like, how do you use a microscope well? Right. How do right. you prepare and these? And he's like, he's been doing this forever. Um, yeah. So that did occur to me. Um, and, but but like one, we have done these co-productions before where like people in the world have expertise, they have shining personalities and just go to them and be like, hey, you want to do a YouTube show? And I did that with Chelsea from the Financial Diet, and which I, is such a good yeah. channel, by the way. Yeah. thank you for yeah, yeah, and producing like, that. Of, of course, like that's like all all them. I just like I was I saw her blog and I was like, you should have a YouTube channel. We met in New York and we had dinner, yeah. and she was like, I would never do a YouTube channel. I don't want to put my face in front of stuff. And I was like, that's ridiculous. <laughs> and she's so good but with it. Yeah. Too. Well, and I I said to her, oh, I, okay. And then she wrote me back and she was like, I'm wrong. I want to do it. <laughs> I was I was wrong. I lied to you. Uh, well, and I I think yeah. it it comes in a time where I think people are starving for more transparency when it comes to money. Oh yeah, you know, oh, and it's God. I think it's so helpful, and it's it's been really cool to see YouTubers on the show and and stuff. I think one of the producers reached out to me, and I just didn't follow up, and now I'm remembering that. I'm sorry, <laughs> I forgot your name. I'll look in my yeah, email again. Yeah. But um, it's such a good show and I'm such a big fan of just the blunt conversations because mm -hmm. I think yep. we need more of that. Yeah, and it's so taboo. Like like asking somebody how much money they make a year is just like, nope, nope, nope. And, and But like, you know why it's taboo? Because it's so deeply unfair. It's so deeply unjust and unfair. And like, we don't want to talk about it because we don't want to admit it. We don't want to, like, like people who make a lot don't want to admit their wealth and people who don't make a lot don't want to admit their poverty. And like, and it just keeps, it just perpetuates the system. If we don't think about it, then we, like all we have is like these, you know, examples of conspicuous spending. That's the only way we display our wealth. And conspicuous spending can be a consequence of wealth or a consequence of pretending to wealth and and going to de into debt. And 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 th then there's no way to see the difference between those two things. Um, and uh, and to me, conspicuous spending is you know like I I try not to judge because like you know there are lots of cultural factors that go into this, but like it drives me nuts because it is just it is just creating a void inside of someone else to yeah, to, wow. to fill up your own void yeah and like that's all it feels like to me and i'm just like Wah. yeah but, yeah <laughs> but like i also yeah. like am very uh uh you know multi-generational uh fine so right right yeah i mean and it goes back to that it's crazy because i have both my grandparents on both sides and um my grandparents were the ones who went from like insanely poor to like having all of these different businesses and building up. Like now my, you know, my grandpa has had a construction business um, and my uh, mom's side or my dad's side, um, 
those grandparents are both doctors and they were like dirt poor, put themselves through medical school, but it's like they had those opportunities in the 1940s, right? And so it really does go back. Um, and it's like, dang, that's what you call lucky. <laughs> you know, it's like there is hard work. There's a ton of hard work involved with this. But the fact that I was like born in Texas, I had a roof over my head. I didn't have to worry about food. I had like a loving family. Like that's what we call being super lucky, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I like, and I think that the correct response to that is not guilt. Like, like, but I think that, but I think it is gratitude. I think it's understanding that luck. I think it's also doing the right thing with what you have. Um, and uh, yeah, and like like interfacing with it, even if it's not like the best, most comfortable f- way to feel. Um, yeah. So yeah, I yeah. Uh, I do it. I'm too. I'm trying. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying that. We're all out here trying, yeah, right? Yeah, um, well, so I do want to show you one more thing before we wrap up, okay. but I'm actually going to wrap up the podcast right now and then I'm going to keep recording. This is something that's not going to go on the podcast, but I just want your opinion on something um, and it might show up into future things. Who knows? Who knows? Um, but Hank, thank you so much for being on this podcast. It was a pleasure to have you. This is definitely like a bucket list check oh. for me. Um, it, it truly is. And what's so funny is um, you're, so my first guest was Gary Vaynerchuk. Um, and he was a big check mark, but he's almost like on the opposite spectrum in terms of like, uh, you know, his, not the opposite spectrum. It's just, it's funny to have. We, do, we approach diff business differently. Me and exactly. Gary. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So it's, it's fun to like have Gary V, Hank Green, uh, Linus Tech Tips, Peter McKinnon, Hannah Witten. There's uh, Shan Booty. I just, I love the uh, variety of guests. So thank you so much for being on. I think you are going to help a lot of people. Oh, hey, thanks. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you too. All right. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, guys, make sure you're subscribed on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen. Every single Monday, there's a new podcast. And until next time, thanks for listening. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. If you guys want to check out Hank Green, please check out the show notes below. He is such a legend. I have so much love for this dude, and I really appreciate him coming on that creative life. So make sure you're subscribed anywhere where you listen Apple Podcasts, Spotify all the things. And once again, thank you so much BNH Photo for sponsoring this podcast. So next podcast, we have Leia Motion on and she and herself, she's so creative in what she does in terms of um, the visual effects. And she's collaborated with people like uh, Will Smith. And so um, it's been really cool to see her really work on her craft over the past years. So we have a really great conversation next week. Um, but she is someone who BNH is a big fan of too. And, you know, they're so great at supporting local creators here in New York City. Um, they help out with gear loans to make sure that, okay, if I'm going to make this purchase on the GH5 or the Lumix S1H, hey, I want to test it out. And so they're just super kind in giving out gear loans um, to make informed purchases. And honestly, you could do that from home with all their resources that they have on their B&H Explora blog. If you want to know all the cameras that are coming out, if you want to get creative over these next few months, maybe you have some crafts that you want to work on. Maybe that requires a light, a camera, anything really. Right now I'm focusing on things that I hate to focus on. I've never traditionally focused on and that is sound and light. It's just something that eventually 
you got to cross that bridge, right? Um, but yeah, thank you so much for listening. Thank you, BNH, for sponsoring the podcast. And usually I have a Sarah PG Q&A at the end of these podcasts that are three questions I answer when you guys use the hashtag that creative life on Twitter. But I'm going to be honest, I'm not feeling that this week. <laughs> so I'll be, I'll be back next week with answering your questions if you just tweet at me. And maybe they can be a little bit topical, working from home, all those things. Let me know. 